introduce today's speakers. Basing today's lecture on their recent book, Facts and Legends of Sports in Richmond, Brooke Smith and Wayne Dementi will present an illustrated lecture on the history of sports in this, our capital city. Our speakers will share with us the venues, memorable events, and athletes of Richmond sports. The essays included in the book were originally presented in Brooks Smith's commentary series, which many of you might remember hearing on WCV Public Radio, and still do. The many new and vintage photographs featured in the book come from the collections of the Dementi family of photographers, whom all Richmonders I know are familiar with. Brooks Smith is a partner at the law firm of Hunton & Williams. His practice focuses on all aspects of environmental law. Brooks, described as a lawyer by profession, but a writer by heart, is the author of three books on Richmond history and is a regular commentator on public radio. Wayne Dementi, following a 32-year career with Bell Atlantic Corporation, which is now renamed Verizon, became the president of Dementi Studio in 1997. In 2004, he founded Dementi Milestone Publishing, which has published many books about the people and places of Richmond. He and Brooke Smith have collaborated before on such titles as Facts and Legends of the Hills of Richmond, which I think is still for sale in our shop, and The Song Lines of Richmond, a celebration of performing arts, artists, and stages. So please join me in giving a warm VHS welcome to Brooke Smith and Wayne Dementi, who will speak to us today about facts and legends of sports in Richmond. Well, thank you so much. It's a treat to be here, and I must say at the outset that a lot of my best research comes from the goodly librarians and the wonderful archives upstairs, so if Francis Pollard is out there, thank you. Uh, before we tell some stories, I thought I would begin with a bit of the backstory, uh, the method and madness of our adventure over the past year or so. Wayne and I have collaborated on a couple of projects, and this was as delightful as any of the others. Um, there were two seeds of inspiration for this frolic and detour into Richmond's sports history. First, for a city steeped in history, we had this sense that sports might be a refreshing and somewhat unexpected lens through which to view and try to understand our storied past. Now, sports may seem frivolous in comparison to our history of struggle and conflict, but they're no less redemptive or cathartic or telling of the immense potential of the human body and spirit. And second, we had this naive desire to enter the great and fractious debate about whether Richmond, Little Richmond, is a great sports town. How can it be, some question, without a single big league franchise or a proven ability to sustain any of the smaller league franchises that have passed through Richmond over the past century? But it is, others say. Just think of our storied roots in cricket, coits, rowing, or hometown heroes like Arthur Ashe and Ray Dandridge. In a moment, we'll share our hypothesis and a few of our favorite stories about why Richmond is a great sports town. But first, I need to beg leave for a confession. For any exploration of this city, the greatest risk is one of omission. Our book is not an encyclopedia. It hints at what makes the sports of our city so special, but it surely omits many stories worth telling. I actually found two after we went to print, and I had the good fortune to share them on the air, if not in in the written word. They were stories that I think define our sports legacy about the great rivalry between Armstrong and Maggie Walker high schools and the two longtime prize-winning dyed-in-the-wool coaches, Maxie Robinson and Stretch Gardner, 
who together in this city coached more kids and affected the landscape of Richmond sports more, I would submit, than anyone else. So if time permits, I'd like to share at least one of those stories before the end of the program. So now, the hypothesis in a manner of introduction. Richmond's sporting tradition is old, nearly mythical. We lay claim to the oldest recorded game of cricket in the New World, the fastest racehorse, one of the most famous coit clubs in the country, the first forward pass in college football, and all manner of strange games inspired by the river, the strangest of which may be riding sturgeon down the James, those primordial giants that live in our river. Our sporting tradition is also rich in heroes. We are home to Arthur Ashe, the great sportsman, humanitarian, and historian. Ray Dandridge, the finest third baseman who never had the opportunity to play Major League Baseball. The Tuckahoe Little League, which launched a group of 12-year-olds to international fame in 1968. Olympians like Harold Thompson Mann, who became the first person in the world to swim the 100-meter backstroke in less than a minute. And modern superstars like Johnny Newman and Justin Verlander, whose legacies continue to unfold. Of course, all sports can be reduced to moments in time, moments suspended in time, moments of greatness, of disbelief, of the immense potential of the human body and spirit. In 1949, Sammy Sneed came from behind five times to win the PGA Championship, the only golf major to be played on Virginia soil. In 1963, Ned Jarrett traded leads with Richard Petty four times before Jarrett's Ford beat out Petty's Plymouth for a NASCAR Grand National victory at Southside Speedway, known as the toughest short track in the South. In 1968, the New York Jets played their season opener against Joe Namath and the Boston Patriots at City Stadium. In 1970, Billie Jean King broke rank from the tennis, tennis establishment and won the first of the Virginia Slims Invitational Series right here at Westwood Country Club. In the 1996, Lance Armstrong endured four grueling climbs up Taylor's Hill to win the Tour du Pont. Our sporting tradition prospers. Rowing has returned to the James, renewing a tradition that dates back to 1876. Tens of thousands of children have been introduced to soccer. At least as many more play tennis, baseball, football, and basketball. Each spring, nearly 40,000 runners descend on the streets of Richmond for the Ucrops Monument Avenue 10K. Each summer, a new generation of racers takes the hill for the Soapbox Derby. And each fall, more than 15,000 runners participate in the races of the Richmond Marathon, including six fabled old lions who have run each and every marathon since 1978. Some lament the absence of a big league team or a big league stadium in our fair city. But our sporting tradition is less about watching than doing. We play sports. From rank amateur to elite athlete, we inspire and sustain more players than most big league cities. And by the look of it, we have more fun than they do too. So now for some stories. I wanted to share just uh, two pieces from the book that we won't have a chance to really share in any detail in our discussion, but in past books we have offered an adventure map for those of you who want to take the book out of your favorite reading chair and onto the streets of Richmond. We tried to identify some landmarks that might be fun to visit and to read aloud and learn aloud while in situ. And uh, for this book we decided to switch from, a t from an adventure map to a timeline uh, just to I guess, highlight all these wonderful moments in sports history that our city should celebrate if it doesn't already. So with that, let me turn to Wayne for our first story. 
Good afternoon, everyone. We've really been looking forward to this, and uh, an opportunity to really kind of brag and share and pat ourselves on the back as Richmonders for what we have to offer. Uh, I know I know a lot of you have heard Brooks on the radio on, on Thursday mornings. Did, did you enjoy his radio voice just then? That's, what do you think? <laughs> the, uh, we're going to do just jump into some of the stories that we had the joy of identifying and surfacing on our journey in creating this book. And, and just tell you certain ones. And one that jumps right off the top, Brooks mentioned it, 1968. How many folks remember a little team from Richmond going all the way to Williamsport? I see hands out there. We had the uh, absolute pleasure of a little reunion with these guys. Brooks helped arrange it. Hank Stoneburner, who played on the team, had us over for lunch one day. And, and a number of these guys who you see in this photograph came back and talked about that journey, that season that they had. And it was quite a journey. Uh, Sixteen players had a single elimination tournament, so anywhere along the line they, they could have been knocked out. Through their first 11 games, they had nine shutouts, five no-hitters. Got up to, uh, on the way, they had to beat West Virginia, Kentucky, Texas, and Tennessee. And then they, then they arrived at Williamsport. And at Williamsport, the first round was Indiana, another American uh, team. And then they had to whip up on Canada, and then in the final against Osaka, Japan. Does anybody know how it turned out? Osaka won the game one to nothing. Uh, it, but it was obviously a, a wonderful journey for these boys. Here's our picture and the Osaka picture in one of the promo pieces for that point in time. And an action shot. But think of being 12 years old, you're on this team, and you're in this venue. You know, it was a big day. And they had a big time. And it was funny to listen to them at lunch here 40, 45 years later or whatever, saying, well, how would we have known we were 12 years old and we ended up that being the highlight of our lives? <laughs> uh, they, they were charming in, in reminiscing with that story. Uh, after they left um, the Williamsport, uh, their next stop was the White House, where Hubert Humphrey welcomed them to the White House. And then they came back to Richmond where they had a visit at the governor's mansion, and then there was a ticker tape parade up Broad Street. And that's a lot of stuff for a 12-year-old, isn't it? Uh, and as you know, if any of you follow, follow the little Tuckahoe uh, Little League, uh, that started an outpouring of support, and Tuckahoe now has one of the most wonderful complexes in, in Little League uh, arenas ever, anywhere. So that's a little Tuckahoe story. For all the true historians out there, I apologize. My method tends to be sideways, and I'm not a trained historian uh, by any measure, but I do enjoy, in, in the course of researching and writing for the radio in these books, taking seeds of stories as far back into the past as I can. And I guess this is a manner of triangulation then to bring them forward as current as possible and then try to validate both past and present with some other reputable resource. And in the course of digging into sports in Richmond, we obviously wanted to go back as far as we could, uh, perhaps not as far back as those apocryphal stories of Hawkins' wild ride on the Sturgeon down the James. But um, in, the, in the course of going backward, one of the great stories came to light, which is the story of Coits in our fair city. And uh, I, I, I will confess to being inspired uh, to the story by a trip down Monument Avenue on a, a beautiful uh, Sunday morning in the spring, and I, I saw all these college kids out in the median 
of Monument Avenue playing Vago, this wildly popular current game of throwing a beanbag into alternate boxes with holes in them. And I was, I was struck by the thought that, gosh, I wonder what Richmonders did three or 400 years ago to pass the time. And, and lo and behold, it was Coit's. And um, I'll try to tell this uh, off the page and more extemporaneously. But as the story goes, Coit's uh, was this ancient game involving a circular disc and uh, poles, very similar to uh, horseshoes, except instead of the shoes, they would use these circular discs. And, the poles were called megs, so your goal was to get closest to the meg or closest to the pin. And um, in every respect, it was horseshoes. I understand that horseshoes came to the fore during the war uh, when it was difficult to cart around the game, so people would shoe their horses and take advantage of the leftover shoes and came up with this game of horseshoes. It ultimately eclipsed quoits uh, almost entirely. You can still probably go online and buy a a gently used set of coits for your backyard, but it's by no means a popular sport anymore. Except in Richmond, we hold claim to one of the most famous coit clubs in the country. And um, as, as the story goes, back in the 1780s, um, one of the beautiful in-city properties right around the epicenter of the VCU Broad Street campus was old Parson Buchanan's farm, and it, it was this idyllic oak grove and meadows and, and meandering brooks. And like many of the most beautiful properties in Richmond, Parson Buchanan had obtained it through the William Byrd III land lottery. Some of you know that uh, the third bird was a little less fortunate than his father or grandfather and ended up racking up some gambling debts that forced him to sell many of the most prized family land possessions in this lottery. Uh, so this original Parson Buchanan farm became home to the Buchanan Springs um, Coit Club. And it was a bit of a who's who in early American politics. Among membership were Chief Justice John Marshall, U.S. Attorney General William Wirt, U.S. Senator Watkins Lee, and defense lawyer John Wickham. And uh, there's many dear stories and etchings of these guys out in the Coit Club. Uh, they said that in addition to being the the judge of last resort and the judge of all high treasons of the day, Chief Justice Marshall was also a keen competitor and he was often on his hands and knees trying to judge the distance of one disc to another to the Meg. And they, this old Buchanan Springs Coit Club would meet regularly on Saturdays between May and October and as the story would go, they would meet and drink and eat uh, prodigious quantities of food and drink and then they would take to the field and play this game uh, you can imagine all the storytelling and tomfoolery, but by club rules, any discussion of politics was strictly prohibited. And I will say among the many choice possessions upstairs, you all at the Virginia Historical Society have among your archives an invitation addressed to Governor Wise to join in the festivities of the Coit Club as an honorary member in 1856. And it's got this wonderful opening line. It says, it has made my duty and I will add my pleasure to inform you that it, you have been invited to join us. So coits are long gone, but if you drive down Monument Avenue, of course, you'll see a lot of kids playing bago. And I guess that's the tradition uh, brought current. Here's just some renderings of coits in the day, coits in the mud. And if you go down to the Valentine, of course, in their uh, row of properties, there's still a coit club outside of the um, John Marshall House.
and had a wonderful opportunity the last couple of years to work on a, a project involving Secretariat, which is, of course, the greatest horse of the tw 20th, this past century. Um, in our research, you know, we want to lay claim to Secretariat and, and that, that reputation. And so in our research and trying to understand how that came to pass here in Virginia, we spent a lot of time up in Hanover County, Caroline County, and Dyesville, Virginia, and came across some interesting, really, really interesting uh, research on the horse planet. I'm not sure how many folks in here would have heard of planet. We certainly had not heard of him. He was born in 1855 at, in Dyesville. He was born at a farm called Bullfield. And this shot was in 1895. And this kind of shows the grounds of Bullfield. And Bullfield was owned by Major Thomas Doswell, and for which Doswell was, was named. Um, but Planet, as it turns out, was the, the secretary of the previous century, right here in Virginia. And his records were pretty much lost because, I guess, post-Civil War uh, losses. And, and it was just the delight to uncover this. What we found, Planet ran 31 times. He won 27 came in second four times, and was the money-winningest horse in America in the last century. And his records had kind of gotten disheveled because of, I guess, the post-Civil War era. So we were just absolutely delighted to have been able to come up with this uh, research. If you've been to Dyesville, you know there's a railroad intersection there and that has been there, and it was a point that uh, folks would come from north and south, and, and they would uh, actually visit right off the, the railroad track intersection. There was a church there, it was called the Turfman's Church. They would go to church after they came in on the train and then they'd go to Bullfield and watch the races and uh, had this wonderful journey. And so Bullfield was a delightful discovery. Chris Chenery, the uh, owner of Secretariat, uh, really got his early uh, year studies on, under what was left of Bullfield when he was a youngster. So it, it has a nice legacy of horse racing in Richmond in Virginia. I've alluded to this already, but it's just too dear to pass. This one's for the golfers out there. The only golf major to be played on Virginia soil took place more than a half century ago right here in Richmond at the old Hermitage Club, now known as Belmont, a municipal Henrico County course. The year was 1949, and the major was the PGA Championship, considered at the time to be the greatest sports event in the history of Father Bird's town. In addition to an A-list of professional golfers, the event attracted the top sports writers in the country, including O.B. Keeler of the Atlanta Journal, who was considered to be the dean of golf writers. The winner was slamming Sammy Sneed, a Virginia native in the unequivocal people's choice. Sneed turned 37 during the tournament, becoming the oldest player at the time to win a PGA championship and the first to win both the Masters and PGA in the same year. A week after his win in Richmond, Sneed competed in the U.S. Open, but ended up in second place, just one stroke away from sweeping the triple crown of golf's majors. Of course, no golf story is complete without a few tall tales. The first involves a fellow named Jack Burke, who was Sneed's match play competitor in round one of the tournament. Burke lost his caddy, the first timer on the course who strayed from the 13th green to the 16th tee and remained happily lost until a jeep was dispatched to retrieve him. <laughs> Burke quipped after the round that he'd lost enough holes to Sneed without having to lose his caddy too. The second involves Sneed's winning putter, which reportedly was borrowed from a boy Sneed had met earlier in the year at the Greensboro Open. 
In the locker room after his victory in Richmond, Sneed was pressed for the boy's name, but he wouldn't say for fear that the boy would ask for his putter back. <laughs> the PGA Championship is considered to be the most grueling test in all golfdom, and Sneed surely bore this out in his five come-from-behind wins during the 49 tournament. For his efforts, Sneed won a whopping $3,500. Amazingly, this put him at the top of the money leaderboard with $12,610 for the year. This includes previous wins at the Greensboro Open and the Masters. Golf has surely changed over the years with staggering purses, rock star egos, razor thin fairways, and greens so finely manicured that only a rare few have the opportunity to play. But here in Richmond, the legacy of our last major persists in the course on which it was played, a course described by the sports writers as not rugged, but sly, remains open to all, young and old, high handicap and low, for just shy of $25 a round. So if you're looking to spoil a good walk or lose a few golf balls, why not see if you can out-putt Slammin' Sammy down the road at Belmont? I may even have a putter to lend to you. Here's some action shots. This, uh, this next little anecdote I thought would be fun to let you guys, I invite uh, offerings from the audience to the podium here as to who, who is the young guy in that photograph? And I'll give you some more clues. And let me, let me give you some more clues. This little fellow was rookie of the year in 2006 in the American League. He made the All-Star team in 2007, 2009, 2010, and 2011. He was the AL wins leader in 2009. Verlander. Verlander, we got it. Yep, that's Justin Verlander and his dad, Rich. Um, way back when. He went on, as you probably know, he pitched his second no-hitter about two weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. Um, he made the All-Star team again this year. Uh, he is the leading candidate, mid-season anyway, for the American League Cy Young Award. And right here from Richmond, Justin Verlander. This is Father Rich. I know, I've known Rich for years, uh, so I had, had an opportunity to really get kind of up with Rich on this. That's, that's Justin when he uh, played, for, as he still is, playing for Detroit. This is in his rookie year. You may recall he pitched in the uh, seventh game of the World Series in his rookie year. He has two no-hitters. Yeah, yeah, I mean, can't get any better than that. This is a shot of Rich and his family, Kathy, his brother Ben, and his uh, girlfriend Emily. Uh, they're living in Florida now, kind of makes sense. This is at Comerica Park. Uh, and you know, it's just such a wonderful journey that, that's taking place here. Uh, I wanted to share with you, you know, we, we talked with Rich at some length, you know, how'd this happen? How'd, how'd we get this, golly day, this fellow who's throwing a ball faster than Nolan Ryan this year, he threw one faster than Nolan Ryan, had this little guy come out of Goochland, come out of Richmond, and uh, he says he doesn't know. Uh, <laughs> but he, I have been working with him. I just wanted to read this. This is kind of fun. We had, he, wrote, he wrote something. He was going to be here today and couldn't make it. Um, our, there's really no roadmap for parents. This much was clear to us from the start in 1989 as parents of then six-year-old Justin Verlander and later his younger brother Ben, who right now is playing at ODU. With little background or experience in any type of organized sports ourselves, we had no idea about the turn our lives were about to take when a neighbor from across the street suggested that our son Justin should sign up for Little League Baseball. 
in our wildest dream, we would never have imagined that 20 years later, after the seventh game of the World Series, we would be invited to Williamsport to be recognized as the Little League Parents of the Year. Isn't that kind of cool? From right here in Richmond. It's a wonderful story. Uh, Justin is making all of us proud. We had a uh, Justin Verlander day out in Goochland, and it was quite a day. Uh, and he is every bit uh, everything. He's got uh, wonderful ethics. His dad talks about when the agents came to town and uh, really studying Justin as a player. Uh, he was expecting all these questions about, you know, throwing and batting and hitting. He said, we didn't get a single question like that. We got questions like, does he clean up his uh, room? Does he cut the grass? How does he treat the neighbor's dog? You know, stuff like that. Really looking for character. And he said he was very impressed with the uh, Major League Baseball's approach to identifying prospects and so forth. Uh, anyway, Justin Verlander, making us all proud. And now a wee bit older baseball story, a story before the Great Divide. Let me apologize. Some of you know the great muralist in town, Ed Trask, whose art decks many of the most prominent restaurants and buildings in our little city. Ed says that he paints uh, with the sound of punk rock in his head. He's a drummer in a number of local bands. I tend to write uh, with jazz in my head, so sometimes I look for the blue note or the riff. And um, this one, I was listening to some, uh, some Dixieland, so it's about Ray Dandridge. When the Saints come marching in, let's hope they blow their horns extra loud for Ray, a baseball superstar who almost didn't get his due. Ray Dandridge was born in Richmond in 1913, attended what was then known as George Mason High School in Churchill, and played for a number of Richmond amateur teams, including the Violets, All-Stars, and Grays, before turning bro. Ray learned to play baseball in the cornfields around Churchill. He and his friends would rake up a field, find a tree limb for a bat, and engineer a makeshift ball out of twine and tape. Ray's build was not classically athletic, short, stocky, and a wee bit bow-legged. He was known by his friends as Squat. But with unparalleled defensive hands, a train stood a better chance of going through his legs than a baseball. Ray was also a wildly consistent contact hitter with a lifetime batting average well over 300. He debuted with the Detroit Stars in 1933. After a few years in the American Negro Leagues, he migrated down to Mexico, where he played for almost a decade. When Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947, Ray returned to America to play minor league ball. At the age of 36, he was named Rookie of the Year for the Giants farm team in Minneapolis. And at the age of 37, he was named League MVP. Around the same time, he roomed and played with an up-and-coming Willie Mays. But despite his many accomplishments, Ray was never called up to the major leagues. Maybe he was too old, or maybe he couldn't beat the racial quotas of the day. Whatever the reason, it proved to be Ray's lament. As he reflected later, he just wanted to get his foot in the door, step in for one at bat, or just have a cup of coffee. He retired from baseball at the age of 41 without fanfare or horns. He moved on. And then at long last, he got his due. In 1987, Ray Dandridge was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Thanks for letting me smell the roses, he said in his acceptance speech. But what took you so long? <laughs> Ray Dandridge passed away in 1994, leaving behind a legacy as one of the best third basemen in baseball history. People said that he could field like Brooks Robinson and hit like George Kell. But his story is obscured by the shadows of a segregated game. 
These days, it's hard to find a cornfield in Richmond, but you can find plenty of kids pulling down tree limbs for bats and making balls out of crumpled cardboard and tape. For them and for Ray, let's all blow some horns. How many have been to Southside Speedway? Oh, look at all the hands out here. You know, uh, this is another one of uh, something we can really be proud of here in Richmond. The Southside Speedway has done what it's done and has meant what it has meant for Richmond. As you probably know, it, um, it, has, it has the little tagline, the toughest short track in the South. And uh, we tried to understand what that meant. And it's, uh, it's, it's pretty accurate, apparently. It's, it's not a uh, track that... Uh, you can just kind of go around and go around and go around. It's got some curves and, and lines to it that just challenges drivers to uh, do well. But a little bit of the history on it. It started in 1946 as a dirt track. Before It was originally Royal Speedway. Do you remember that term, Royal Speedway? And it was sold to uh, J.M. Wilkinson in 1958. His plans were not racetracks. His plans were development, doing some kind of a development activity there. But the economy didn't support it, and so he said, well... Let's keep on racing. And so he did, and he did it obviously extremely well. It, uh, it did so well that in 1961, it held the first NASCAR Grand National race uh, in the state. Uh, he's had a parade of people run through there, uh, whose names you'll recognize if you're a race car fan. Junior Johnson, Jimmy Pardue, Ned Jarrett, Richard Petty. More recently, Denny Hamlin, Kyle Busch, Tony Stewart, Elliot Sadler. So they really have had a lot to do with uh, what's going on. Um, there is the track. It's out off of Route 60, still thriving. That's J.M. Wilkinson and the daughter, Sue. Now, we hope, is Sue here? I don't see Sue waving. But part of the story that I wanted to share with this, uh, this anecdote is Sue, because she really has made this thing happen. She, uh, she took it over from her dad after he passed, and she had that um, father calling. The dad likes this thing, and we're going to make it keep on going. And she's kept it going all these years. As you may have read in the newspaper, this year was a, was a uh, challenging time because she had some serious health problems. But she pulled through it, and the track is open and running again. Um, she, she is really a Richmonder. And when I asked her about her proudest uh, moment as far as having something to do with the successful driver, she points to this photograph of her with Denny Hamlin. So, Southside Speedway. A year ago, June 21st, uh, my third child was born. And I, I know it well, of course, as a parent. Um, but I know also because my wife was frantically trying to call me on my cell phone. As Wayne and I were giving a talk right around the corner to the Richmond Kiwanis Club on the beginnings of our sports book, and she was trying to call in to say he was on the way just as we were in the midst of our talk. And um, afterwards, after I had shared some of these antique sports stories, uh, someone in the audience came up, an Englishman. He said, well, you didn't say anything about cricket. And I thought, a classic Englishman to want to know about cricket. He said, no, don't you know that Richmond is home to the oldest cricket in America? And I, I remember jotting it down mentally and nodding and smiling and being polite and thinking that the guy was crazy. I'm sorry if you're here. And uh, then, of course, I was distracted for the next couple months with a newborn and uh, didn't come back to it for a while. And then I thought, well, shoot, if there's truth to it, I'd like to know. And 
Certainly, if we have that kind of superlative in our past, it ought to be told as part of the book. And lo and behold, it is true. So here it goes. Richmond can claim two unexpected superlatives in the League of Sports Firsts, the oldest recorded game of cricket in the New World, and the earliest evidence of an organized cricket team in America. Lest there be any confusion by cricket, I do not mean that little jumping bug, but rather the game of bat and ball that spread with the British Empire and continues to inspire nearly religious fervor in over 100 countries around the world. The oldest recorded game of cricket in the New World is credited to William Byrd II, founder of Richmond. In his secret diaries, Byrd offered sundry and delightful, if not occasionally absurd, accounts of his wiles down at Westover on the James River. His and the New World's earliest reference to cricket dates back to an entry from May 6, 1709. But another entry provides unrivaled color on a day in the life of our city's father, a member of the King's Council, a fellow of the Royal Society of Great Britain, author of the Westover Manuscripts, Gentleman Farmer, and Cricketeer. Here it goes. March 28, 1710. I rose at six o'clock and read a chapter in Hebrew and some Greek. I ate milk for breakfast and said my prayers. I danced my dance. About 10 o'clock, Major Harrison, James Burwell, and Mr. Doyley came to play at cricket. Randolph, Doyley, and I played with them three for a crown. We won one game, they won two. Then we played at billiards till dinner, before which Ludwell came on his way to Harrison's. They all dined with us, and I ate boiled pork. Soon after dinner, the company went away, and I took a nap. What a life, right? <laughs> then we walked to Mr. Harrison's, whom we found better. We played a game at cricket again. I took leave about eight and returned home, where I found Jenny better. I caused her to be cupped and then gave her pills. It's my favorite line. This was my birthday, on which I am 36 years old. And I bless God for granting me so many years. I wish I had spent them better. Proof, perhaps, that a little idleness may nonetheless inspire greatness. The earliest evidence of an organized cricket team in America is preserved right up the road at the Library of Virginia, the rules of the Richmond, Virginia Cricket Club, replete with the cost to join, $1, and the penalty for missing practice, 25 cents. An artifact at best, but one that places Richmond out in front of Charleston, Boston, and New York City for the prize. The rules of cricket may defy reason to an American audience more accustomed to the baseball diamond than an oval field of stumps, bales, bowlers, and batsmen. But the game persists, even here, in rec league and elite teams harboring dreams of cricket greatness. And even if you don't know a sticky wicket when you see one, you'll still enjoy seeing a pitch or two. After all, as Lord Mancroft said, cricket is a game which the English, not being spiritual people, invented to give themselves some conception of eternity. Cricket. Um, this this next little anecdote is, is a fun one to share with you uh, because I'm gonna I'm say that uh, we can, we in Richmonders can claim to be the birthplace of the professional women's tour. So let me explain how that's true. Now uh, you'll see this shot here, Billie Jean King. That's on the courts over here at Westwood, and the story begins uh, like in 1968 or 69. The women were always following the men around. Uh, at, at Wimbledon that year, the, the men brought home $4,800 for uh, winning the Wimbledon Grand Slam, and the women brought home $1,800. Uh, Billie Jean King was, was kind of annoyed with that and wanted to make things better, and so they were scheduled to play in Los Angeles uh, as, you know, in, in a, prior to the men. And she uh, organized nine, eight other women and formed the original nine 
But we're not doing that. We're going to Houston, Texas, because we're going to have a tournament in Houston, Texas, a women's tournament, uh, which they did. And it was extremely successful, so much so that Philip Morris, who sponsored the tournament, said, you know, we ought to uh, start a tournament, start a tour, and call it the Virginia Slims. You ever remember that? And uh, since Philip Morris was headquartered in Richmond, we'll have to have our first one here in Richmond. So sure enough, at the Westwood Club in 1970, uh, this first one occurred. Billie Jean King won it. She beat Nancy Ritchie. At the time, Billie Jean had won four Grand Slams. Uh, Nancy Ritchie had won two. Uh, here's a shot of the, uh, a year later, but the, the Slims kept, kept returning. Here's Margaret Court with Governor Holton on the courts over there at Westwood. Virginia Wade came. Oops, got to back up. I got to got to finish the story. <laughs> but you know, it was it's it's such a delight to kind of uncover this because no one made the announcement then that this is the opening of the professional women's tour. It just kind of happened, and we wanted to lay claim that Richmond was the birthplace of the professional women's tour, but we needed some validation for that. So. Ventured forth a telephone call to Billie Jean King. I said, if anybody can say whether or not that was true or not, it would be Billie Jean King. And, and sure enough, we were able to get through. And so I had this conversation and said, is it true that Richmond could say that we are the birthplace of the professional women's tour? And she said, no, no, it was Houston. And I was, you know, uh, so we kept talking and I told her about the research. I said, well, Houston was like an exhibition. It was a result of the exposition that y'all wanted to start a tour and Philip Marsh got behind it and you came to Richmond. She said, Hmm, you're right. You can make that claim. <laughs> and she sent us a letter to that effect. So, so, so we're proud to say that we're the birthplace of the professional women's tour. But you, on the, on the greater scale, you know, the, the, the th thesis here that we are an active sports town, I'm sure you're also proud and patting yourself on the back that last year Richmond was named one of the top three tennis towns in America. So, very cool. <clears throat> This is not a tennis player. <laughs> um, perhaps one of the least known of our sports stories, at least the ones we were able to uncover, but the one that takes us closest to the big screen. The story is about Blackjack Billy Fox. To end up with a name like Blackjack, you need to show some hustle. For Blackjack Billy Fox, he found all the hustle he needed right here in Richmond. As a transplant from Oklahoma growing up in Richmond, Fox hustled all manner of odd jobs. He delivered papers, shined shoes, set bowling pins, and helped tend to the family garden. He got, also got into his share of scrapes at school, distinguishing himself as a quiet but querulous kid. At the age of 16, Fox quit high school and ran away from home. His worldly possessions at the time were a bicycle, a book on boxing, and a penny in his pocket. He rode from Richmond to Appomattox, sold his bike for bus fare, and then wended his way north, first to D.C., then to New York, and finally to Philadelphia. In South Philly, Fox worked days and boxed nights. Over the next few years, under the management of a shady mobster named Frankie Blinky Palmero, Fox amassed a record of 36 consecutive knockouts, occasionally hyperbolized as 49, and earned a shot at the world light heavyweight title. The bout took place at Madison Square Garden on February 28, 1947, and featured Fox against Gus Lesnovich in a barn burner brawl that went 10 rounds. Lesnovich knocked Fox down for an eight count in the 10th. Fox stumbled to his feet and tangled Lesnovich to the match, but then the ref called the fight as a TKO for Lesnovich. Down but not out, Fox took his 
36-1 record back to the gate and won seven straight in his bid for a rematch. Among his comeback bouts was one against Jake LaMotta on November 14, 1947, immortalized in Martin Scorsese's film Raging Bull. LaMotta, a bruiser from the Bronx, was the first boxer to beat Sugar Ray Robinson. But in his fight against Fox, LaMotta was more butterfly than bull, going down peremptorily in just four rounds. He initially blamed his poor showing on a spleen injury that he had suffered in training, but the rest of the world suspected that the fix was in. More than a decade later, LaMotta confessed to a Senate committee on organized crime that he threw the fight in exchange for a promise from the mafia to give him a future shot at the title. For his part, Fox earned a rematch against Lesnovich just a few months later, but the bat was a bust. Fox was dropped twice and then knocked out less than two minutes into the first round. He continued to box afterwards, but the stain of the LaMotta affair changed the course of his life. In 1956, a reporter from Sports Illustrated found him desolate, vagrant, and despairing on the streets of New York City. By the time of the Senate hearings in 1960, Fox was believed to be a patient at a mental hospital in Long Island. After that, he simply faded away. Blackjack Billy Fox was a mythical boxer with a career record of 48 wins, 47 by knockout, nine losses, and one draw. He had a hustle that took him to the top of the game, almost to the top of the world, and then down and out. By the end of his life, he was back to setting bowling pins, just like his early days in Richmond. A cautionary tale, perhaps, but one that has a source with a kid on a bicycle in our fair city, with nothing more to his name than a book on boxing and a penny in his pocket. The year was 1989. Anybody down on the streets? 1989 for this event, it was it was just something to behold. Uh, all these bicyclists going however fast these guys go through the streets of Richmond in the Tour de Trump in 1989, and it was such a successful event that uh, Richmond became a headquarters for it for a couple of years, and it continued to run. Uh, it, in 1991, it changed its name from the Tour de Trump to the Tour de Pont, uh, and in that year, Greg LeMond was the winner. So you know, we have some hot stuff going on here in Richmond. In 1995 and 1996, Vance, I mean Lance Armstrong was the winner. Um, and look at the street. Isn't this phenomenal? Do you remember this? I mean, we turned out for this event. Uh, and Richmond was obviously proud to be the host for this event, which, which kind of leads to the closing thought on, on this particular uh, anecdote. And as you probably know, you're, you've been reading, we, you know, we've got a record of success to build on the fact that we are pursuing the opportunity to be the host city again for an international cycling uh, championship in, what, 20, you know, what year, a couple of years from now? So we're hoping that the success in the history of our uh, Tour de Pont and Tour de Trump will pave way for us getting something back like this very soon. There's a great line from Lance Armstrong when he made Taylor's Hill, ascended it and topped it for the fourth time in this circuit through Richmond. A reporter caught up with him and asked him what it was like and all he could say was, phew. <laughs> <laughs> so this one's near and dear to me and uh, I'll tell the story, but a, a little bit of the backstory. As we were talking about um, quaint old Richmond sports events, uh, there's plenty of them. When we launched our book at the Library of Virginia last fall, Bobby Ucrop offered some introductory remarks and talked about his uncle being the horseshoe champion of Richmond back in the 40s. And can you imagine that the city had its own horseshoe tournament? 
Well, Wayne started talking about the soapbox derby and conjuring up images of his own run and race in the 60s or 50s with his brother. At the time it was on uh, Lakeside Avenue down the Bryan Park Hill. And it, it was just a, a taste of a slice of life back in the day uh, that's still going on. And, and I took my daughter out to see it last year. She wasn't eligible, but Wayne and I went to take some photos for the book. And I entered her in her first soapbox derby this uh, summer, just a month or so ago, and she got to race for the first time and, and had the uh, distinction of veering off course, apparently because I didn't put her hat on tight enough, and she <laughs> took out all the cones between the two tracks and then took out the big clock at the bottom, <laughs> uh, which a lot of parents thought was pretty funny, but the, um, the representatives from Akron, Ohio, didn't think it was terribly funny at all, so I'm not sure we're going to get invited back, but all she could say was, because Wayne has told the story to her about his own race. That in Wayne's race, as the story goes, his tire came off. And the thing about the soapbox derby is you're supposed to build it with your dad, and it's supposed to be tight and you know way way into the ounce of when it came in the box. And I guess he didn't tighten that front wheel. So every time Emma, my daughter, sees Mr. Dementi, she says, "I don't want your car. Don't let my wheel fall off." <laughs> but here's the story. It's called Soapbox Heroes. The All-American Soapbox Derby rumbled to life way back in 1934 through one of those happy accidents that seemed to accompany the mother of all great inventions. As the story goes, a photographer for a Dayton, Ohio paper happened to come across three boys racing homemade go-karts down the street. The photographer, Myron Scott, was known for creative thinking, and somewhere in the recesses of his mind's eye, he captured not only the iconic image of boys behaving like boys, but also the idea for a grand-scale national youth racing competition. More than a million racers later, Scott's vision has become what is affectionately and perhaps not so immodestly known as the greatest amateur racing event in the world. Each year, children from all over the globe descend on Akron, Ohio for the world championships. But to get there, they have to win in their hometown first. Richmond Soapbox Derby has been around since at least the 50s. Back then, the races took place over on Lakeside Avenue. In the 80s, our derby boosters moved the race downtown, first to the Mammoth Hill on Canal, then Bird, and then second and 10th Streets. Throughout its run from the glory days of the 60s to the halcyon days of today, the Soapbox Derby has been about craft, perseverance, and competition. According to an old brochure, the ingredients for success are a look of cool determination, steady hands, and in the background, of course, a willing parent, to which I should add an uncle or troop leader for the kids at the Patrick Henry House who compete each year, a caring community volunteer. The Derby is nearly incongruous in these days of virtual action animated video sports. It might take a hundred hours of bruised thumbs to assemble a racing shell, all for the thrill of a 30-second race. But as I've learned from racers past and present, from the happy, wistful, but determined look in their eyes, the Derby is about much more than can be packaged into a video game. As Tennyson might say, the Derby is not now what it once was, but it abides. And for a few hours on Saturday in June, over by Gate 6 of the Richmond International Raceway, it will be recalled to life through the joyful noise of racers and caregivers, and hopefully our community at large. The event is free, the hill is wide, the steering is tight, and as they say, the memories are priceless. This is our derby. This is the Akron Derby. And these are my little kids. Thank you. <laughs> so I know we're running short on time, and I think that's the end of the prepared program. We'd We'd welcome questions if you all have questions. Wish we could share more of the stories, but at least you got a flavor.
I guess if you do have questions, it's kind of hard to hear or see you, so stand up, please. Wait for the microphone. Any evidence that uh, Babe Ruth played at Mayo Island a baseball game? I'm so glad that you said that. He, he did play Mayo Island baseball game. Uh, and my epilogue, I try to offer a nod to the Babe while he was in town. There's this uh, truly apocryphal story, if that's an oxymoron, that the Babe hit the longest home run in baseball history right here in Richmond, hit it over the Mayo Island fence and end up in a cold car on its way to Baltimore and it wasn't recovered until Baltimore. <laughs> and I thought that's, that's just too good not to put down. But in my triangular research, of course, I wanted to validate it and so I typed in Babe Ruth and home run and longest and into Google and, and I come to find that a number of cities around America claim that same story including, at the time, the Atlanta Crackers, the Norfolk Tars, and countless other teams and cities across America. So I thought it best to keep it out. <laughs> but he did play here. Other questions? In your work, did you, uh, by chance, uh, do anything with Coach Robbins and his great story over Virginia Union? Yeah, in fact, of the three stories that I came by after the book went to print, one was on Maxie Robinson, the great coach from Armstrong. The other was on Stretch Gardner, the great coach from uh, Maggie Walker. And the third was on David Robbins, a longtime coach at Virginia Union. And he was, he was the living, breathing uh, white shadow, that, that great television show from the 70s or 80s. You know, this uh, incredible coach who came to a historically black college. And his story is, is well worth telling. I'm only sorry that it didn't get into the pages of the book. Well, thank you all.